Thank you, worship team. If you have your Bible, I invite you to open to the New Testament, the second book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark. We began a study in the Gospel of Mark last week, and I'll say again this week the same thing that I said last week. If there was a series title for going through the Gospel of Mark, if there was a theme that Mark wanted to communicate almost above everything else, it would be this, amazed by Jesus. Over and over and over again, Mark uses some form of this phrase, and they were amazed at him, speaking of the ministry and the life of Jesus during his earthly years here. And again, I want to invite you. How long has it been since you have been amazed by Jesus? Do you need to be amazed anew by Jesus? I found myself this week as I was studying and praying, I found the, the lyrics of the old hymn came back to me, a, a Charles Gideon hymn, a little over a hundred years old. And, and uh, maybe you know this, uh, I would speak these words, but they're meant to be sung, and I don't have much of a singing voice. So if you know this, would you sing along with me? I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how He could love me, a sinner so unclean. How marvelous How wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. How long has it been since you felt that? Where you've looked at who Jesus is, and you've been amazed by it. How long has it been since His love for you, demonstrated in what He has done for you at the cross, has overwhelmed you as wonderful, as marvelous? Could it be that we are much like the people in the church of Ephesus that Jesus speaks to in Revelation 2, Revelation uh, 2, 4, And he looks and he sees all that they do and all the programs that they have and the knowledge that they have, and yet he says, I have this against you. You have left your first love. In other words, you have failed. You are no longer amazed by me. You are just caught up in routine. And what does he say? What is the answer to that? It's not over if that's what we find, that it's been a long time since we've been amazed by Jesus. It's a long time since we've been overwhelmed by love for Him and what He's done for us. No, he says in Revelation 2.5, repent, turn back to that. Repent and do the things you did at first. And that's what I pray that this gospel of Mark is for all of us. It is, a, it is a turning back. It is a, Lord, I want to be amazed by you again. I want to see your love as, as overwhelming, as marvelous, as wonderful 
as it was when I first encountered you in a true saving way. And if you're here this morning and you've never experienced this, I pray the Holy Spirit can do what I cannot do, and and that is as we go through the words of Mark, uh, anointed by the Holy Spirit, that He would overwhelm you with who Jesus really is. Well, all that leading into our text for today. Last week, we looked at the first eight verses of Mark chapter 1. This week, a slightly shorter section, verses 9 through 13. I'm reading this morning from the New American Standard. And it came about in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water... He saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon Him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in You I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit impelled Him, drove Him to go out into the wilderness. And He was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and He was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. If you hear, if you were here last week, you, you see how last week's text prepared us for what Mark gives us this week. Last week, Mark highlighted John the Baptist, and what was the essence of John's message? He's coming. Get prepared. He's coming. The powerful one, the mighty one, is coming. And now, what does he tell us in verse nine? He tells us He's come. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. If you want, if you're taking notes, here's here's a quick and short overall organization of of really this section and what I'm going to do briefly today. In verses 9 and 10, what do we see? We see that Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit for His ministry and mission. In verse 11, we see that Jesus is affirmed by God the Father of who He is and what He's here to do. And in verses 12 and 13, we see that Jesus is approved by being tested in the wilderness. And on all of this, why is all of this together? Why is this, I think, one unit? Because Mark's purpose is to show that Jesus is here being prepared for His ministry and mission. What He has come to do, this is His final preparation, what happens in His baptism, what happens in His testing in the wilderness. So let's briefly go through that. First of all, Jesus is anointed by the Spirit. Verse 9, He comes from Nazareth and Galilee. Mark mentions Nazareth as the hometown of Jesus several times in the gospel. At this point in in history, it was a very small, insignificant town, probably less than 500 people lived in Nazareth. Today, if you go, I had the the, the, the blessing of being able to go to Israel for the first time um, the summer of 2017, and our bus tour went to Nazareth, and Nazareth is a big modern city, but there is this historic Nazareth village that you can visit, and you can see life much like it was at Jesus' time. Very simple, very insignificant. He comes from this insignificant town, and he comes to the Jordan River and is baptized by John. Now, don't read over that too quickly like I generally do going through the Gospels. Okay, he was baptized. Let's go on from there. 
Really what caught me this time is that very fact. Jesus, the Son of God, is baptized. Why would Jesus, the Son of God, be baptized? Think of what baptism is. Next Sunday, we have the privilege of seeing nine people who are going to undergo baptism. You'll hear their testimonies, and though they're all different and they all have different unique stories, you will see a common thread in all of them. And the thread is this. They have all come to the place in life where they recognize they were living life in one way or another apart from God, turned away from God, and They recognize their eternal peril in being turned away from God, and they recognize that the only provision, the only way they could come into a right right relationship with, with God was through Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross. And so, they have done this, but they are testifying to this next week as they are baptized. Their baptism is a symbol, I have put my faith in Jesus as Savior, taking away my sins. I have given, I have committed my life to Jesus as Lord, as King, and I am committed to be part of His body, the church. Well, that's not what Jesus was doing here. In fact, that's not even what John's baptism was all about. Jesus hadn't died and risen again yet. So John's baptism was a baptism, we were told last week, of repentance. People were coming, and they were confessing their sins and they were committing themselves to live a holy life. Well, let's measure that up with Jesus. Did He have any sins to confess? Absolutely not. Could He have lived an any holier of a life than He was living up until that moment? Absolutely not. He came as the perfect sinless one. He came as the perfect holy one. Even John the Baptist knew that Jesus did not need his baptism of repentance. He initially resisted baptizing Jesus. We don't see this in Mark, but we see it in Matthew chapter 3, verse 14. John tries to prevent him from being baptized. John says to him, I have need to be baptized by you, not the other way around. And yet you come to me to be baptized? Even John knew that his baptism of repentance and recommitment to holiness did not apply to Jesus. So why did Jesus seek to be baptized? Why did God and God's purposes direct Jesus, the Son, to be baptized? I I think Jesus gives us part of that answer, part of the answer in his response to John, again in Matthew Chapter 3, this time, verse 15, Jesus replied, Let it happen now. Baptize me, John, he's saying. It is proper for us to do this, and here's the key phrase, to fulfill all righteousness. And hearing this, John relented. John consented and baptized him. To fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? Righteousness to be in a right, perfectly right relationship with God. Righteousness to be living in perfect harmony with God's will. And so Jesus' intention to fulfill all righteousness means that He has committed Himself as the Son of God now come down, taking on human form in His earthly life and ministry to fulfill 
every purpose of God, everything that God laid out for him to do, to do everything that he wanted, that God the Father wanted him to accomplish. And there's many aspects of that, but we get a hint, I think, of one very significant one in Isaiah chapter 53. So much of what happened in Jesus' baptism and temptation harkens back to Isaiah and the prophets. And if you've read Isaiah, you may know Isaiah 53. It is what we think of as the suffering servant chapter. In Isaiah 53, God is speaking through Isaiah, and He's speaking about how He's going to send His Messiah to rescue us, to save us, but He's not going to send Him as some great political leader. He's not going to send Him as a conquering king. He's going to send Him as a humble servant who will suffer for us and save us through His suffering. And Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53, 12, as the suffering servant, He would be numbered with the transgressors. Let me make that really real for us. I am a transgressor. You are a transgressor. All of us, when we depart from God's loving rule over our lives and we try to live life our own way without God, we transgress. We go astray. We go outside the boundaries. We are transgressors. And Jesus is saying, or God is saying of the Messiah, when He comes, He will be counted with you. He will take His place alongside you. We, the transgressors, have Jesus coming in the flesh and identifying identifying Himself with us in our sinfulness. Although He was never sinful, He identifies, He is counted, He is numbered along with us. And in doing so, Isaiah says, He can bear the sins of many, of us. He can intercede for us, the transgressors, and save us. Jesus' baptism was the beginning of that, of identifying with you and me, of being numbered with you and me, of coming alongside you and me. And I find that amazing. I find that amazing when you really think about it, that God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the second person of the Godhead, who has spent all eternity and glory would lay that aside and would come alongside me in my sinfulness and you in your sinfulness and be numbered with us so that He can go to the cross for you and for me. And that began at the beginning of His public ministry at His baptism. Well, we also see something significant in verse 10. He is baptized and immediately coming up out of the water, He saw the heavens opening. Now, the he here is Jesus. Jesus is the one who sees this, although we can tell from other gospel accounts he's not the only eyewitness of this. In the gospel of John, John 1.32 tells us that John the Baptist saw it because John the Baptist later testifies, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove on him. But either, either way, whether it's Jesus seeing it or John seeing it, or even if there was other people who see it, what, what did he see? What does it mean that the heavens are opening? And why is that significant to you and me even today? Well, I think the background of this is Israel's turning away from God in the Old Testament. 
And by the way, Israel, even though they were real historic people, and these are real historic accounts, they're a picture of you and me. They turned away again and again from the faithfulness and the loving kindness of God to pursue their own way in life, to go after the things that they think would give them life, that they think would give them happiness, just like you and I do. And what we see as we read through the prophets is the Old Testament prophets warned again and again, they warned Israel that if they continued to turn away from God, at some point God would cease speaking to them. His Holy Spirit would no longer move the way they had seen it in history. And that's just what happened. As the Old Testament comes to a close, the prophets lament how the Holy Spirit has now become absent from Israel, how they no longer hear God's voice speaking to them. That's why we have the end of the Old Testament. And we get, a, we get a flavor of this in Isaiah 64 when Isaiah expressing his angst over, he doesn't see any movement of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't hear the voice of God speaking through the Holy Spirit. He, he calls out to God, oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would tear apart the heavens and come down that the mountains would tremble before you picture Isaiah has is that God is drawn back into the heavens, almost like curtains closing between where God is and us on the earth. And and Isaiah pleads with him, tear that curtain apart. By the way, that image of tearing that curtain apart, there's one more time in the Gospel of Mark where Mark uses this, this same picture of tearing apart, and that is in Mark 15 when When Jesus dies on the cross, what happens to the veil, the curtain in the temple? It is torn apart. Same word. Same word. God began to answer Isaiah's prayer, but he did it here at the baptism of Jesus. And when the Messiah, Jesus, comes down and he is counted among us, he identifies with us, his people, through submitting to baptism, God opens the heavens and we don't know what that exactly looked like, but that's the image of what happened. God is, God is again opening the heavens. He is revealing His presence and His power to us again, and He's doing it through Jesus. We look at Jesus, and we see the presence and the power of God operating again. By the way, he does so with a visual image of Jesus being anointed, and I'll explain that in a minute, but that's the image of the dove and the Holy Spirit in the second half of verse 10, the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. Now, don't take that to mean this is the first time Jesus is given the Holy Spirit. There's a whole strand of heresy running through church history that believes that, that Jesus was only a man and he didn't have the Holy Spirit. He didn't become divine until his baptism when the Holy Spirit came upon him. Jesus had the Holy Spirit from his very first moment when he was conceived. It says that the Holy Spirit came upon Mary. Jesus has never been without the Holy Spirit in all of his earthly life up until this moment and all the rest of his life there on earth. So if Jesus has always lived in the power of the Spirit, if he's always had the Holy Spirit, what is happening here? What is this anointing? What does Mark want you and me as we worship Jesus to understand about the relationship between Jesus, the Son of God, and the Holy Spirit of God? Well, again, 
what God was doing was in fulfillment of what He'd promised to do in the Old Testament. There's many places, but let me give you two places where He's promised this. Isaiah 11. In Isaiah 11, God is again speaking about the Messiah. The Savior is going to come and save us, and He says this, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him. What do we see happening at the baptism? Isaiah 42, he speaks of this suffering servant, our Savior, that he would send. Behold my servant, I have put my Spirit upon him. How clear a picture could we have than of the Spirit descending like a dove at his baptism that God was fulfilling this. What God was promising through Isaiah and what God was fulfilling at Jesus' baptism was his anointing to his ministry and his mission. Again, this is something not done today, I realize, but in the Old Testament, when a man became a priest, when a man became a king, he was anointed. And let me just give you one clear picture of this. David, probably the king. If we know any kings from the Old Testament, we know of David. And we read of David's anointing when he first became king in 1 Samuel 16. Samuel the prophet anointing David, we read, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, in the midst of his brothers. And what happens when he's anointed? The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. It's a picture of that. That is an Old Testament picture of what was happening at Jesus' baptism. God the Father is anointing Jesus the Son. And in doing so, He is setting Him apart. He's setting Him apart as unique, as, as Savior, as, as King. He's, he is, Jesus is given, not that He's not been, not had the Holy Spirit, He's given a new manifestation of the Spirit, anointing Him with power to meet the demands of His ministry and mission. He would face demands in his earthly life and what he did for us that no human being has ever faced, that no human being could stand before. And God is anointing him with the power of the Holy Spirit, equipping him to face that. And that's what we see as Jesus begins his public ministry. Luke records in chapter 4 that right after the testing in the desert, verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. He begins his public ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. And a few verses later, he is in Nazareth, really his first time of public speaking in the synagogue. And they ask him, do you want to read? Do you want to read from the Old Testament Scriptures? And what does he choose? He chooses the scroll of Isaiah. And where in Isaiah, but entire book, does he open it to? He opens it to chapter 61. And what does he read from the words of Isaiah? The Spirit of the Lord has come upon me because He has anointed me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed. And if you know that story, he goes on to say, today that Scripture has been fulfilled in me. That's exactly what Jesus came to do. Now anointed with the power of the Spirit, He begins that public ministry. All the rest of the Gospel of Mark, preaching the good news to the poor, the materially poor and the spiritually poor, like you and me. He, in the power of the Holy Spirit, He gives freedom to the captives, freedom from sin. He gives recovery from the sight to the blind, the physically blind and the spiritually blind. 
like you and me. He sets free the oppressed, the the actually enslaved oppressed, and those who are oppressed and enslaved by sin like you and me. And he does this in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm amazed by Jesus in this. And I'm even more amazed. If that wasn't enough to be amazed, I'm even more amazed that Jesus promises to anoint us with his Holy Spirit. If you come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord, do you have to live the Christian life in your own power and just keep trying harder? No. He anoints you with His Holy Spirit. He pours the Holy Spirit into you. I realize sometimes we don't realize that. I realize sometimes we don't tap into that. But He has anointed us with power to live for Him, to follow Him, to serve Him, to glorify Him. He has anointed us with the same power of the Holy Spirit that He was anointed with. So in verses 9 and 10, Jesus is anointed with the Spirit. In verse 11, Jesus is affirmed by the Father. That's the voice there that comes out of the heavens. You are my beloved Son. In you, I am well pleased. Again, I think this is an amazing image. Do you see the first person to the second person there? God the Father is speaking directly to God the Son. Yes, John overhears it. Maybe others witnessed it. But this is direct communication between the Father and the Son. I mean, rarely do we see a glimpse of the Trinity, of the Godhead, where we see that communication and we see that relationship between the Father and the Son. Well, what about that statement? In you I am well pleased. What is it that God is affirming when he says to Jesus, in you I am well pleased? Well, first, I think God is affirming the truth of what Jesus said about himself. Jesus says in John 8, 29, I always do the things that please the Father, that please God. During his entirely, entire earthly life leading up to that moment, and from that moment until his death, Jesus, in everything that he said, that he did, every decision that he made, he did, he always did what pleased the Father. He lived his whole earthly life for the glory of God. And by the way, that's what you and I are called to do. We, as we are saved, we're not saved and just then live the rest of our, our life fat, dumb, and happy. We, we are saved to glorify God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, in whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And that's why He anoints us with the Spirit, that we can live a life that is glorifying to Him. But I think there's more. I think that the Father was also affirming what Jesus was ultimately on earth to do, what God had foreshadowed through the prophet Isaiah, again back to chapter 53, the suffering servant chapter, the Lord was pleased to crush him. In you I am well pleased. The Lord was pleased to crush his suffering servant. Now, don't take that to mean that God the Father took some perverse pleasure in the humiliation and the suffering and the crucifixion of God the Son. It means that God was pleased with the Son's commitment to walk as the suffering servant. He was pleased with Jesus' decision, yes, I will come to earth. Yes, I will identify myself 
with them. Yes, I will suffer for them. Yes, I will go all the way to the cross where I will die for their sins, for the sins of the world. And when I think about this, again, I'm amazed. Again, Charles Gabriel's verse says it better than I can. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them His very own. He bore the burden to Calvary. He suffered and died alone. And in that, God was well pleased. And God says, I know that's what you're going to do. I know that is what you're committed to do. In you, I am well pleased. Jesus is anointed with the Spirit in verses 9 and 10. Jesus is affirmed by the Father in verse 11. And then in verses 12 through 13, Jesus is approved by testing in the wilderness. Immediately, the Spirit impelled him, drove him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Immediately, the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness. There is a, there's no time of lingering in the glory of his baptism. There's no rest. There's no break. As soon as he is anointed with the Spirit, Jesus feels that strong inner compulsion of the Spirit to go further out into the isolation of the desert and face the adversary. He was in the wilderness 40 days. That's, that's not an accident that it was 40 days. That is the pattern we see again and again in the Old Testament when, when God tests a person. 40 is, is, is usually the, the, the period. He sent Moses up onto Mount Sinai, the wilderness of Mount Sinai, for 40 days. He sent Elijah through the wilderness to Mount Horeb, 40 days. And I realize it's not 40 days, but he took the nation of Israel 40 years through the wilderness of Sinai to the promised land. Very significant what God was doing here. And what happened in the wilderness? In the wilderness, God allowed His adversary, that personal, supernatural opponent of God who seeks to subvert His will, who seeks to destroy God's creation that we know as the devil, as Satan, the adversary, God allows Satan to tempt Jesus. Now, Mark, characteristically, is very brief, not much description as you can see. I, I love what Ray Stedman, Pastor Ray Stedman says, though, really thinking through this. He says that throughout that 40-day period, the devil was at Jesus' side trying to break him with every means of attack at his disposal. Satan attacked Jesus in his body, in his emotions, in his soul. Satan probed and assaulted and sifted Jesus. Satan bombarded Jesus with every thought and temptation that human beings are subject to. Imagine the worst temptation that you have ever faced. His temptation was far worse because, you know what, we, we fail in temptations. And so we never get to the place where we have experienced temptation full strength until it is exhausted. Jesus did. Jesus knew every way that you and I are tempted, and He met that temptation at its full strength. 
And so when we read in Matthew and Luke about the final three tests, what we're seeing, Stedman says, and I agree, is only the final test. This came at the end of the 40 days. This was the culmination of 40 days of tormenting and testing that Satan was allowed to do in Jesus' life in the desert. I guess that begs the question, why did God allow Satan to tempt Jesus? By the way, that's the truth there. Satan wasn't on his own able to tempt Jesus. Satan did only what God allowed him to do. And the same is true of you and me. Satan can only tempt us. We can only be tempted by the world, by the flesh, or the devil as God permits it, as his hand allows it. What Satan intended as a temptation to get him to fall, to get him to fail, God used as a test. He was tested in the wilderness. God tested. What did he test? He tested Jesus' fitness for his mission. He tested Jesus' commitment to his mission. The temptation of Jesus proved that he passed the test that he was qualified for his work on the cross for us because it was only as a sinless sacrifice that he could actually take upon himself your sins and my sins and the sins of the whole world. God allows us, as I've already said, God allows temptation in in your life and my life as followers of Jesus. And it's for the similar purposes, what Satan, what the world, what the flesh intend as a temptation to trip you up, to get you to fail. God uses as a form of testing to strengthen you and me, to build our faith. Even when we fail in our temptations, which we do, God still uses that to strengthen our faith, to produce, to bring about greater faith in us. And in the midst of our temptation, we know we can look to Jesus. We know we can look to Jesus because while his temptation did prove him to be sinless, he still experienced it all. He experienced every form of temptation that we did. It made him sensitive and compassionate to what you and I experience in the midst of temptation. Hebrews 4.15 tells us we don't have a distant Savior. We have a high priest, a merciful high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. Why? Because he has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Remember that the next time you're in the midst of temptation, the next time you fail in temptation, you have a merciful high priest who knows what you experience, who knows what it's like, who is there alongside you identifying with you. So Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, they reveal God the Father preparing Jesus. God the Father is preparing Jesus the Son by anointing Him with the Holy Spirit for His public ministry and mission. God the Father is preparing God the Son by affirming Him. And God the the Father is preparing Jesus the Son by testing Him. He did all this to prepare him for what we're going to see in the rest of the Gospel of Mark, his his public ministry and mission culminating in his journey to the cross. We're at the cross. He dies in our place to pay the penalty for our sins so that we can be reconciled to God. Are you amazed by this Jesus? Have you come to that place, that first time where you were amazed by Jesus, where you went beyond seeing him as is some cultural figure, some historical figure, somebody you hear about in church, 
now and then, and you've come to see him up close and personal in his saving work for you as your Savior and Lord? Have you come to that place where you have seen him and your need for him, your need for him to come alongside you in your sin? Will you be able to sing one day as again Charles Gabriel Gabriel concludes his hymn, when with the ransom, the saved, in glory, in heaven, his face I at last shall see. And it will be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. Is that something you know in your heart? You can do that for the first time today. If that you've never come to that place, this amazing Savior wants you to meet him, wants you to receive him. If you've done that, do you need to be amazed anew? Do you need to come to that place where once again you look at his love for you, demonstrated in all that he did, demonstrated in how he has saved you, and how he is present with you? And do you need to come to that place where again you say, how marvelous, how wonderful? Let's pray. Father, I go to another gospel, John chapter 1. Jesus was in the world, and the world did not recognize him. Jesus, that's us. We live in a world that does not recognize you as as Son of God, as Savior, as Lord. And Jesus, maybe there's some who like me at one point in my life, do not recognize you as Son of God, as Savior and Lord. And I pray, Lord, as your Spirit works through this glimpse that we're given of you in the Gospel of Mark, that the rest of that promise in John would be real. Yet to all who receive Jesus, receive Him as Son of God, receive Him as Savior, receive Him as Lord, you give the right to become the children of God. Draw hearts to you today, Lord Jesus. And Lord, for those of us who know you as Savior and Lord, may we see you anew in a fresh way. May we be newly amazed. May we see you as the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, deserving of all honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.